welcome to a very special bonus episode of Unjustly Maligned. I'm your host, Anthony Johnston, and what you're about to hear is not a regular episode of the show, but rather an extra feature, if you will, consisting of a long outtake from episode 24, where Corey Cassoni talked about the board game Monopoly. Corey is a big game history buff, and basically spent the first 35 minutes of the recording explaining the game's strange and fascinating origins. It's great stuff, but it's not really relevant to why the game is maligned, unjustly or otherwise, and because I try to keep episodes under an hour, it simply had to go from the final edit of the show. But it is such a comprehensive overview of the game's history and so interesting that I didn't want to just leave it on the cutting room floor, so to speak. And so here it is, in all its uncut glory, for your listening pleasure. Hope you enjoy it. Correct me if I'm wrong, but the uh, the first version of this was created by a, a woman, which most people don't know. Elizabeth Maggie Phillips, yeah. Uh, and she called it the Landlord's Game, and it was supposed Correct. to educate people about the evils of land ownership and unchecked capitalism, which of course now are kind of celebrated in the game. Right. <laughs> So this is what's so interesting, and, and this is actually somewhere where, and, and if you listen to Surviving Creativity at all, you know I have, a very, I have a very weird relationship with the press, but this is another instance, and this comes up every two or three years. Some press person will rediscover uh, Lizzie Phillips and how her game was stolen by Parker Brothers and turned from a, a game warning of greed to a game all about capitalism. And, and though that's a fantastic byline, the, the reality of that is actually not even remotely true. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> yeah, so... Uh, in the 1870s, and, and this you got to roll back a little bit, about 30 years before the, the initial iteration of the game, there was a guy named Henry George. And if you look up Henry George, you're going to find him immediately because he wrote a, a book called uh, Progress and Poverty. And this book was so popular that it was an, until his death and even long after his death, really until the, the 1930s or 40s after the Great, you know, after the Great Depression and everything, um, this this book was so popular that it was only beat on the bestseller list by the Bible and anything Mark Twain had published wow. at the time. <laughs> it was the third best-selling book in the world forever. And uh, Progress and Poverty was, was really the first use of the modern term monopolist. Um, at the time, in, in the 1880s, you had monopolies forming, but there were no, in the real world, we're not talking about the game now, so... These monopolies were forming in America. Um, think like hardcore and Rand stuff happening, right? You had guys that owned everything. I mean, the these are the predecessors of like the Rockefellers. They're the they're the train barons in this kind of stuff. It was the but, age of the robber barons, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, and the thing that they owned the most of that was crushing to all society was land. Uh, you have to remember until really until after the Great Depression in the 1930s or 40s, people didn't own land. No one owned land at all. Only only rich people, only these monopolists owned land. And that's what they were called. They were called monopolists and not with any kind of derision. They just were. <laughs> so if you lived in a, in a house, you were paying your landlord. That's where the classic, if you look at, at any kind of media from the turn of the century, from like the 1910s to the 1930s, and even to the 40s, you know how people had a landlord and there was that stereotypical landlord, they were kind of annoying and they owned the building and they sort of came around. Uh, that was because nobody owned any property. Everyone had a landlord, except for a small handful of people. 
And Henry George, who was who was a socialist, and at the time, uh, a good chunk of America were socialists. There were there were actually fewer capitalists than socialists, but the capitalists were had the money were sort of in control. I don't even know that they were called capitalists at the time. Uh, Henry George was a, was a socialist, as were most people, and in his book Progress and Poverty, he had he had done a lot of economic science, and he had figured out that monopolists, who were the deed owners, controlled everyone's lives, uh, basically by taxing the hell out of them, right? And he was an advocate of a new idea called the single tax. Uh, and, I, and forgive me to any economists because I'm sure I'm butchering this, but the idea of the single tax was that you essentially paid, you should be paying a tax on, on your land to uh, a greater entity and that money should go to betterment, mm-hmm. right? As opposed to these monopolists who are, just, who are just amassing wealth and just destroying people on tax and there's just constant, there's taxes here, taxes there, taxes everywhere. He was an advocate of the single tax idea. Um, and until, uh, and it was a popular idea, a really popular idea. Um, there were some, uh, the first antitrust laws started coming up, uh, when Theodore Roosevelt, uh, the American president came around, he started trust busting, which he was going after these corporations at the turn of the century. This is early 1900s trying to break them down and he was unsuccessful at it, but every, you know, he, he piloted the whole walk softly and carry a big stick, right? right yeah. His, his idea, the big stick, people think about that in foreign policy now, but he was talking about domestic policy. The big stick was to break up the monopolies. It was to break up the monopolists. I mean, that was really what it was about. Hmm. Uh, ironically, mon- <laughs> monopolies ended. And the reason why this legislation finally passed is because the rich people got so rich, they turned into philanthropists. Oh, <laughs> we're jumping way ahead now. But what ended up happening was the Rockefellers of the world who became the richest. They, they got so wealthy and they got so old that they said to themselves, God, what have I done with my life? And they began giving back to the community. Uh, and that, and the, and allowing legislation to go through, and that's it. Wasn't until after the first Great War that's what actually destroyed the monopolies. They did. They destroyed themselves. They broke themselves down. Huh. Uh, if they had decided just to keep on amassing wealth indefinitely, they could have and would have. Um, but that's neither here nor there. So uh, Henry George had this idea of the single tax, and this really um, affected Lizzie Phillips, who at the time. Was uh, she was a public stenographer and, and an activist. She was one of the first wave of feminism, first wave activists, right, of, of in America. Uh, and she was also an inventor. She uh, actually invented the uh, the return on the carriage typewriter because she was a public stenographer. So you know, you type on a typewriter. Oh and yeah, it used to be, hit you the lever. Like yeah, push yeah. it across. Right. What well, which we still now acknowledge in the use of the word phrase carriage return. A- absolutely, she invented the carriage return. She was the inventor of it and the patent holder. So. By inventing it and and getting a patent for it, she discovered that's where she learned all about patenting. And this was in you know 1903, and she created the landlord game uh, as a way to teach people about the single tax. The original landlord game had uh, the go space was called Mother Earth, and then as you kind of moved around the board, uh, I'm trying to remember it went Mother Earth, and then Jail was the same, but it was also called Jail slash Absolute Necessity. And then public park was free parking and then go to jail was still go to jail. And all the spaces in between just took money from you. So Mother Earth paid you every time you went around the board. And then all the spaces took money from you. And then you went around the board five times and whoever had money left won, right? Uh, So really the game was just to teach people 
that they're being destroyed by all these taxes, by all this taxation, and yeah, that there should right. be really a single tax. It was it was a teaching game. So there still wasn't any strategy. It was still a luck based game at that point. Uh, yeah, but it, but again, it had some really new and interesting ideas. You know, that this idea of continuous continuously going around the board by right? having a fixed number of spaces. The idea of four prominent corners. Like these are some really bizarre ideas when you talk about games. She had she first introduced the lots and the railroads and the utilities and the bank penalties. She had cards. Those those all ideas all came initially from the game. Uh, but the game did finish after five circuits around, and then whoever had the money was the winner, essentially. Uh, it was, at the time, the, the other thing really interesting about it was it was the, the most intricate simulation game at the time. There was nothing like it. And because most people didn't own any property, it was their first introduction to finance. Ah. No one had money. No one had, I mean, they were getting to play these monopolists. You know, they were putting on this guise, right? And uh, at the time, at the turn of the century, board games were really popular, but most people actually made their own board games. So in 1903, Lizzie patented, because she had had the patent on the, on the return carriage, she had patented the landlord game, but she patented it as a teaching tool, not as a game. Right. And, uh, then there was a kind of an interesting twist also at the turn of the century. These socialists were so powerful, uh, you know, I, in some would argue equally as powerful as monopolists. They were basically monopolists with a huge amount of money who decided to use their monopoly for socialism. And this community popped up in Delaware uh, called Arden. And basically what happened is these guys bought this huge plot of land and they built a town on it. And the, the town was called Arden. And it still exists today, actually. And you would, as as a, a person, you would come, a lay person would come and they would uh, basically get a 99-year lease with a single tax. So you're, you're, you're only paying one tax a year and it's going to the community of Arden. And then the community of Arden uses the money to better the community of Arden. Huh. And it didn't matter what you did. So you have this plot of land. If you built a mansion on it, right? Just a huge man, you improve the hell out of your land. You still paid the same tax as the guy next door that had a shed. Right. This idea sadly didn't stick. You know, I, I don't know how it is in the UK, but in America, they every year they come and they assess your house and determine how nice it is, and then they apply a tax to it. So, uh, we added a bathroom to my house, for instance. My taxes went up. Oh wow! My property tax increased. We don't. We don't have. It's not quite that granular, but yes, we have. Um, we we have a council tax, which is uh, goes in bands according to the value of your property. And they're supposed to reassess it every so often, but in practice, they rarely do. That's interesting. So, uh, again, the single tax would probably apply to you as well. And, and if you look in your history, I'm sure someone has fought for it. This idea that why are you taxed more on your property, which is identical to the proper be, property behind you, but it's different. Sure, sure. So Arden was built and the owners, you know, these huge monopolists, they paid the government what they needed to pay. But everyone on the, on the land had essentially a hundred year lease for one tax. They paid flat and they drew this amazing community of socialists and economic uh, uh, economists and interesting thinkers. And what they did is they encouraged people to go around and spread ideas. So you had socialists and capitalists and Marxists and communists, uh, not at the time because they didn't exist, but uh, some of these people were coming to this area and they were all living there. And, and of course, uh, our, our pal Lizzie was just drawn to this, right? So she brought the landlord game to Arden. And at the time, these games were made by individuals. So she had made this game on a, you know, on a 
uh, cloth, an oiled cloth, and painted in all the spaces and everything. And uh, at the time in America, people were just kind of making games. You would just make a game and pass it around. And then if somebody played it, they would go, I played this amazing game at Arden. You know, they were there for the summer or something. They'd go home and say, I played this amazing game at Arden. I'm going to remake it so we can play it. Ah, and then they right. would build their own version of it and it would change. Okay. And in uh, 1905-ish, she had brought uh, the Landlord game to Arden. And there was uh, an economist there named Scott Nearing, And he was a professor at a university. And he thought this game was just amazing. It was it was the perfect game to teach his students about finance and economies. The idea of majoring uh, in economy at a university was a big deal because America needed this, right? This is the turn of the century. You've got the wealthy and the not wealthy. You need somebody in the middle to teach about uh, the difference, to become so that everyone could kind of become this way. And, and Nearing, of course, was a hardcore socialist. So he renamed the game the anti-landlord game, and he brought it into his classes <laughs> to, <laughs> to teach his students about finance and economy. And his students started calling the game the business game or Monopoly. And these students then took the game and they moved all over the country when they graduated and they built their own versions of it. So now from Arden, you have this game that is just spreading across the country that everyone is playing. Okay. And they're all playing it a little differently. Everyone's doing something a little different with it. And, and, uh, nearing students, the, the five circuit thing they didn't care for. They wanted the game to go until someone was bankrupt. Right? Until, until only one person was left and everybody was bust. So the idea was, what can we do to change this game so that one person can stay alive? Remember, these guys are, these guys are economy nerds, right? They're like really interested in how to exchange money and they're, they're studying this stuff. And Nearing is encouraging them to change the dynamic of the game in order to become this new thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, so th- then we've got a second patenting. This is in 1906-ish where Lizzie's been to Arden and the game's developed a little bit. So she goes and uh, she creates a firm because people made firms at the time. It was basically a fancy name for businesses. And she created this firm and they started publishing the Landlord game. And very small publishers at the time. You would, you know, you and I would basically in our shed out back make these games by hand. It would make 50 of them. And then we'd go to a local store and try and convince them to carry them. That was literally how it was being made. And there were companies that were still doing that right through to the 70s and 80s. That's how Games Workshop started. Absolutely. And in fact, it wasn't until the 80s when capitalism really went bonko that uh, corporate, huge multi-billion dollar multinational corporation conglomerates firmed. And they took all these, these uh, smaller firms, these smaller companies, and they pushed them all under one giant corporate umbrella. Um, but, you know, that's, that's, a, that's a future story. <laughs> but that's because I'm a business nerd and I like that stuff. Um, so to, to jump back a little bit, uh, and I, sorry for the ridiculous history lesson, but I, I'm, this is an important part of the game. No, no, this is all fascinating. I had no idea about most of this, and I'm sure most of our listeners didn't either. Right, and most people don't. And I, I think this is key to really appreciating the game uh, and enjoying it when you play it. Um, so Lizzie built the Landlord game in 1903, the original iteration. In 1883, this guy named George Parker with his two brothers started a firm called Parker Brothers. And they were making games. And what was really cool about Parker, and this is also something people don't know about Parker Brothers, uh, Parker in the 1880s was uh, a little distraught because his wife Grace and all of her friends and a bunch of other people that were women couldn't get jobs. And he thought this was ridiculous. They were so capable. He had seen his wife was amazing. She helped him with all of their games. He was a game designer and a game licensor. In fact, most of Parker Brothers games at the time were licensed. And he and Grace hired 
uh, a bunch of women, which was really weird. Again, this is like 1883, yeah. 84, 85, right? To make games. So he had a warehouse, a big factory of, of women carving little wooden pieces and painting. Again, most stuff is done on oil cloth now, painting these boards. Everything was done by hand. Mm-hmm. That was how all the games were made. The cards were made by hand. The, uh, again, we, we were in the middle of the industrial revolution now, so we haven't really hit that point yet, right? Where you have big machines and child labor and all that stuff. Parker was hiring these women who had no jobs, who he thought were amazing to make board games. And because of that, he, in 1909 was first introduced to, uh, Lizzie and her landlord game. Uh, but not just the landlord game. Lizzie, by now, she had designed some other games, and she had she had designed uh, a game called uh, Mark Mock Trail that, in fact, Parker picked up and licensed and published for years. And other there are many other games that he took from her and licensed. But he passed on the landlord game because it was a teaching tool and not a game. Ah. But th- he 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 saw that the game was interesting because of this continuous path. What a crazy idea, right? Right, which was still unique at the time, I assume. So unique. I mean, we see it now all the time. You have, you go around the, most games now, you go around a board. You know, when you roll it, what is around? You go around, right? Mm -hmm. But, But at the time, that was super weird. So in 1909, uh, he had kind of said to Lizzie, like, I can probably do something with this. We'll need to change X, Y, Z. And she insisted on it being stayed the same. Now, remember, it's only been 10 years. Roosevelt's in office. Uh, many of, of the, the people in politics of the day were pushing for this idea of single tax. They wanted to break up the monopolies. They saw that the robber barons who came out of the train era were dangerous. It was a bad idea. This is going to be bad for America in the long run, right? We need to break this up. So she was adamant on, on that the game was about a single tax and that we need to teach people about single tax. So he passed on the game uh, because it was a little too instructional. Um, and then in 1913, the game was actually published in Scotland. Really? Yeah. It's called uh, Brer Fox and Brer Rabbit. Huh. And it was the landlord game. But it, again, it tied into Scottish politics. And, it, and you'd have to be from Scotland to know exactly what this was about. But I, it had to do with you know one person having all the money, uh, one class or society having all the money, you know, probably a, a ruling party. And then someone who was, you know, the 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 rabbit trying to make their way around the board, but it was, it was published in 1913 as the landlord game. It was the original iteration of it, but it was published as Br'er Fox and Br'er Rabbit. And it was actually pretty successful in Scotland at the time. Uh, and then the great war happened. So now we've got world war one, right? Which just crushes everybody right when the landlord game is starting to get some interest. Um, world war one comes, uh, I, I think it was newbie games in Scotland was publishing it. They're, they're destroyed. Parker brothers almost goes under. Uh, it was not great for everyone, <laughs> as, you, as you might remember. Kind of a bad time. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we come out of the war now, and uh, Parker Brothers, and th- this is actually uh, key and interesting to, to the story of, of Monopoly. Parker Brothers passes on a game called Mahjong. Wow. And this is, this is a game brought over from China and Americanized by a guy named uh, Joseph Babcock. And Joseph Babcock had, had, he was a, I don't know if he was a whaler or a trader, but he had been spending time in China and he was introduced to Mahjong, uh, traditional Mahjong, which was, you know, playing tiles and match. Mm-hmm. It was a matching game, right? And he Americanized it a little bit, brought it over and Parker passed on it because it, it was, it was too weird. 
like these <laughs> symbols that Americans don't know. And more to the point, he had been pushing the game Rummy. Oh. Which is essentially the same game. But with regular playing cards. Yeah. So uh, he passed on the game Mahjong because he was already publishing the game Rummy. And, he, and people could just play Rummy. You could buy a pack of cards and play Rummy, yep. right? Along with a hundred other games, yeah. Right. The other reason why he passed on it was because to buy these tiles, to buy a set when he did the numbers on it, it would cost like a buck, which at the time was three to $500. Right, yeah, yeah. A fortune. You know? Yeah, and that was like, oh God, nobody's going to pay for this. So he passed on Mahjong. And then Mahjong exploded. <laughs> it started on the West Coast. <laughs> Everybody wanted to have a copy of Mahjong. People were making their own copies. They were they were shipping it over. And of course, Mahjong becomes a huge hit in America. And Parker is just crushed. Right. Suddenly, he's the guy who didn't sign the Beatles. He's the yeah, Exactly. Uh, and then back comes Lizzie in 1923 with the Landlord game, which this time he liked it even less because... <laughs> <laughs> Politics had shifted by now, right? So everything was a little different. This idea of a single tax was actually pretty dated. Uh, you know, after the Great War, the the um, the trust, the antitrust laws started going through, and trust busting was happening, and these monopolies were being broken up. The first round of monopolists were starting to amass huge amounts of wealth and go, "This is dumb. What am I doing with all this money?" And they were starting to spread it around. So we're coming out of the Great War into this interesting period of crazy economic growth. Of course, this is leading into the Great Depression, right? Because now... So at the time, now everybody's saying, well, we don't need a single tax. Right. So now the idea of a single tax is starting to get a little dated. But he appreciated the game. He had licensed other stuff from Lizzie. And he says to her, you need a new patent on this game. You've got to go repatent this. Because what would have been happening to Parker Brothers... And this is, this is interesting if you're interested in patent and trademark law. Um, Parker Brothers would publish a game... And it would immediately be ripped off. Because remember, everybody's publishing games at home now. They're making their own games. So if you lived in a small community, you know, at, out say say this game is being published in London and you live in Winchester or something, you just start making the game in Winchester and selling it to your local toy stores. Well, it's like it's like modern clone games on iOS, isn't it? Absolutely. You're literally stealing it. But you're not changing anything. You're just changing the title. So... Having a patent was super important, but also protecting that patent was a big deal. And only the biggest companies could do it. And, uh, and what I think as a, as a business nerd, what I think is one of the most interesting things is the way that Parker protected these games, they would put out ads that basically said, if you steal our game, we're going to sue you. <laughs> so right next to, you'd have an ad for, you know, pits or something like that. And right next to it was another ad that said, don't steal this game or our lawyers we'll will take come you to court. You. <laughs> right. <laughs> And that, that was, at the time, in the 1920s, that was actually the safest way to protect your wow. property, was to take out ads threatening to sue someone, or even offering, in some cases, offering rewards if, to, to people if they knew that a game was being you know, manufactured illegally. Um, so Lizzie gets a new patent on this, and then the Depression happens. Now we're in the 1920s going to the 1930s, right? So but monopolies were starting to break up. Everyone started investing. Uh, you know, Americans understood investing now and everyone's dumping money in the stock market. And then there's a crash and everybody's broke. And what ended up happening was Lizzie's game, which had in night been made in 1903, 1905 goes to Arden. And then from 1905, basically to 1920 had been being taught in at university. Mm -hmm. 
Nearing had been taking this game and showing all these economists. And then the economists had started going all over the country and were building their own versions of the game. So now we enter this era where everyone is making their own version of Monopoly. And they all had different names. There's the finance game, uh, the business game, Monopoly in some cases, the landlord game, Mother Earth. I mean, they had all these titles. Everyone called it something different. And people are whittling their own wooden pieces to play the game. They're changing cards. They're adapting the spaces on the board, right? It's going, it's just blowing up. It's going totally nuts. And then we come out of the depression. And then in 1935, uh, Parker has has since turned the company over to his uh, son-in-law, whose name was Robert Burt. And his and again, they, these guys are hardcore feminists, right? Some of the first wave. Burton's wife gets a phone call from an old college friend and says, "Have you heard of the game Monopoly?" And uh, she goes to Burton and says, "My friends are playing this game called Monopoly, and it's it's apparently it's the best." So what had happened during the Depression, it was, and there's a lot of history on this if you want to look it up, but the game had, at some point had made its way down to Atlantic City and had gone through some – it really did well in Atlantic City. That's why there's so many properties on the board named after locations in Atlantic City and, and railroads that ran through there and that kind of thing. And it just exploded as a game and, and from there had really gone out. And uh, there was a guy named Charles Darrow who had taken the game – and he is the guy, have you ever heard people talk about tipping point? Yes. So like he was the guy that pushed the landlord game past the tipping point. And it's because he changed everything about the game. He, he put all the iconic stuff into the game that we recognize now. The, the uh, property started taking on the names of Atlantic City. That happened outside of him in the depression. The color coding the the cards started becoming solidified of how they were played the number of spaces around the board because the four corners and the continuous path was normalized by now right mm-hmm. but the number of spaces was not so he's the guy that said there should be 10 spaces around this board he did the math on it and the reason why he did this was because he was a repairman that was out of work during the depression he had nothing to do and he got a copy of this game played it with some friends and was just sitting in his house all day long just obsessed with this game playing it and playing it and playing it adapting it adapting it adapting it he realized he could start making boards and selling it. And all his entire family's income was made by making really, really, because he was a repairman. He was great at whittling pieces. He was making little pieces. He was a good painter, a good engineer, and he was making these beautiful boards and he was selling them. And he was actually making them on board by this point, not oiled cloth. I believe they were still cloth oh, okay. in the 30s. You know, there was still, I, I don't know, what, and don't quote me on that. I don't know when the shift happened to board, but a lot of stuff was still made on cloth right through the second world war. It was still a big deal to make your own stuff. Right. right, right. But people wanted this version of the game. It played right. It, it worked well. You went around the board until somebody was out of money. This idea of starting to, to, to collect properties and be the landlord start that started to happen. It was, it was the haves versus the have nots. It was still teaching certain things, but it was enjoyable now. More of a game. Yeah, it was more of a game. And there was a shift happening in American interest in games that becoming People were interested now in finance because the Great Depression happened. They understood money now. People were land, ordinary people were owning land at this point, right? Because again, these monopolists had kind of killed themselves. They died off at some point and they started to spread their wealth around. They started selling property to individuals. The idea of ownership of land was coming back. And this game worked with people. At the same time, Parker Brothers was publishing a game called Pitt, which was based on uh, stock market trading in Chicago. 
you could still get the game today. It's a hugely popular game, but that was from the turn of the century. And this idea that people would be interested in trading in the stock market was huge, right? Mm -hmm. So now Monopoly is suddenly a, a, a big deal. So Burton, uh, who is who is the son-in-law of Parker, gets his wife gets a call and says, "Have you heard of this game Monopoly?" And this is the game that was made by Darrow, and this is where it sort of hit. It, it went over the tipping point. At the time, he had just been selling them to friends, and then at some point, as we started to come out of the depression, he said to his wife, "This is you know this is it," and he sunk his entire life savings into about five hundred copies of this game, and he was going to toy stores trying to get them to carry this game to sell it. Oh wow! And it still wasn't working, and Burton remembered monopoly he they you know they knew what they licensed they were still licensing games from lizzie they knew it had gone under all these other titles he was still not really interested in the game but he remembered the mahjong <laughs> failure of, <laughs> right, of yeah. his of his father-in-law and he didn't want to miss out on this idea so he bought the game from darrow and they started looking at it and they went this is lizzie's game so then they went to lizzie and they bought the patent from lizzie oh interesting so the things that they learned from Mahjong and from past games that were just being uh, copied all over the place, especially as people were making their own games, they really needed to protect this stuff, which meant they needed to hold all the patterns. So they, they and, and really, I think the only reason that Lizzie sold them a game was that because now we're in 1935, we're heading into the 40s. Uh, you know, there were antitrust laws now. Monopolies have been broken up. The idea of the single tax is, is pretty old and is frankly is out of favor. Socialism is out of favor. Everyone can be a capitalist now. It's the society's working again. We're also coming out of the great, uh, the great war, the great depression. We're heading into the second world war. There's, you know, there's actually some, a lot of stuff happening right now. And she kind of recognized that a, a teaching game about the single tax was a little dated. So she sold the game under uh, the agreement that they would actually publish the landlord game at some point, the original landlord game at some point with their picture on it and crediting her and everything. That's of course where modern day journalists get because she took out some ads for it. In fact, Parker brothers took out the ads for it saying that she was the original inventor of this game and all this stuff. And because she was an activist, she used it to push some, some suffragette ideas and you know, it, it worked out well for everybody. I, I don't think that, that, that uh, and I could be wrong, but I don't think there was ever a time when, Parker and Lizzie were really at each other's throats. They, they upheld each other's bargain. I don't think she was happy that that was the end result for her game. Right. But she was also not dumb. Right. But there is this narrative that seems to crop up every so often that she got ripped off somehow. And you're saying that's not the case. No, they bought the patent from her in 35. Uh, they bought the patent from her. They bought the patent from Darrow. And then they began protecting it, uh, really protecting it. So they, they started... Uh, placing the ads that you would place to protect the game. They went after other people that had made other versions of the game and not just shut them down, but bought them out. Like a monopoly. <laughs> that's in fact, that's exactly what they did. Yeah. Uh, they actually took the, the 500 or so games that Darrow had left and bought them from him and, and sold them, even though they, they uh, Burton was against it. Uh, they recognized that, you know, we're coming out of the depression the company's still hurting a little bit. We need to go ahead and do this. And, uh, long story short, within 18 months, they had sold over 2 million copies of the game. Wow. Just everywhere. And at the time, I mean, it, that's a big deal now, but at the time it was unheard of. It would have been crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Totally insane. Right. So uh, I think they paid Lizzie three or 400 bucks for her patent, Darrow as well. And, you know, you hear that now and it doesn't seem like a lot, but remember this is 1935. Right. Yeah. That so was probably a lot of money then. Yeah. It was a significant amount of money. Um, 
And they did, in fact, publish the Landlord game uh, by Lizzie. And it, and they released some press releases and they put out some ads talking about Lizzie and her work. And they had published many of her other games. But yeah, there is kind of this constant narrative that pops up in modern day culture. I would say every two to three years, whenever you know, whenever Hasbro, who now owns Parker Brothers, has some kind of announcement, some journalists will appear out of the woodwork and talk about how Parker Brothers ripped off. Right, the, the forgotten inventor of Monopoly, yeah. And, well, and, and to be honest, she was until until the 70s. Uh, it was, uh, oh God, his name is alluding now. His name is Sid and he was, uh, I wish I could remember his last name, but he was a historian, uh, who was also a game maker and he made the game acquire. Have you ever played, played acquire? Uh, I haven't. Hang on a second. Let me look it up. Sure. It's a huge, huge game. Okay. So acquire is actually built on the game bingo. Uh, okay. the original game of bingo. The guy's name is Sid Saxon. Thank you, Sid Saxon. So Sid Saxon designed a choir. And uh, when Sid was building this game, he was researching old games. And this is something that people forget a lot about. And you'll see it now in modern day games. You can't really patent or trademark uh, a mechanic for a game. Right, yeah. You can't protect that. And, and it, it's a good thing. I mean, don't get upset about this. I mean, this is actually a good thing because every now and then someone will come up with a new mechanic and it'll get adapted into other games. The, the modern day example that I like to use is there's a game called Puerto Rico, which has this mechanic where you choose what you do, what you want to do that turn. Mm-hmm. And, and it allows you to do one thing and it allows all your opponents to do something else. And when Puerto Rico came out, by the way, if you haven't played Puerto Rico, it is probably my second favorite game. <laughs> it is a great game. Yeah. It's a fantastic game. Uh, this concept, this mechanic was brand new. There's another game called Twilight Imperium, which went through two editions by the time Puerto Rico had come out. Uh, it's a space, big space opera war game, and it had kind of suffered because it, it wasn't, it just wasn't working. People weren't interested in that anymore. For the third edition, they took the mechanic from Puerto Rico of choosing what you do that turn, introduced it to the game, and now it is, it is one of, if not the best war game you can play. I really and truly. I mean, I know there's diplomacy and someone is probably out there screaming right now at the, <laughs> <laughs> the thing about diplomacy. But if you want to play a game where you're not going to lose friends, Twilight Imperium is the way to go. And that game will take you six hours, by the way. But it took this mechanic from Puerto Rico and moved it over. So you, you can't protect a mechanic like that. Now, Lizzie had patented her game as a teaching tool. Technically, Parker Brothers could have just published Monopoly, as it were, and really not had a problem. They could have gained the patent on it. In fact, they originally went to gain the patent on it. And that's when they discovered that Lizzie had this patent from 1924 because Uh, George Parker, Burton's uh, father-in-law had said to Lizzie, you need to get a new patent on this game because at the time it had gone into the public domain again, but she had taken the patent as a, as a teaching tool. Parker of course was taking the patent as a, a game. So they, they actually didn't even have to pay her for her patent. They had a history with Lizzie. Right. And they didn't want to get in a legal debate because they just coming out of the depression. The company was, was on, you know, was tight anyway. So they went out and bought up all the patents from all these other people that had all of these versions of Monopoly. There were a lot of versions of Monopoly at this point, all called different things. So they either, they either went and, and, uh, you know, basically gave a cease and desist to people who were making the game locally, or they went and bought people out, which was the case in most instances so that they could control they could have the monopoly on monopoly, if you will. <laughs> and that's, I mean, that's the reality of what happened, right? Because you can't, you can't protect a mechanic like yeah, that. Yeah. Um, anyway, so that's kind of the history. Of- <laughs> <laughs> a potted history of monopoly. Um, and that's why you should like the game, Dan. <laughs> 
You've been listening to a special bonus episode of Unjustly Maligned with Anthony Johnston and Corey Cassoni. Unjustly Maligned is a 7RQ production for the incomparable that is made in England. You can find more information, links and show notes at ump.fm. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time. Thank you.